for our 11 o'clock service. Hopefully that woke you up. Hopefully you're already awake. It's <laughs> 11 o'clock. But if you weren't, hopefully that woke you up a little bit. Uh, my name's Jay. If you're new here, I'm the director of worship. Would you stand with us? We're going to hear our call to worship this morning as we begin. Listen and prepare your hearts for worship. This is Psalm 62, the first, well, not the first, uh, verses 5 through 8. And we're actually going to sing our first song this morning is, is basically a setting of of that psalm, the entire psalm, but we're going to read a portion of that as our call to worship. So listen to these words as we begin. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. 
On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Let's pray. Father, you are our refuge. You are our strength. We thank you for faithfully being those things and more. For being our rock. For being our salvation. For being our fortress. God, may we remember today what is true of us every day. Our hope is in you. Our hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So would you, Holy Spirit, be with us in this place this morning, that you would encourage our souls as we wait for you to return. Jesus, may we sing together with confidence in your goodness and faithfulness. May we find rest for our souls today. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together. Would you join me? My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation. A fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my heart on righteousness. I'll look to him who hears me. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. Everlasting, never fading, my redeemer, my Find rest, my soul, in God alone, amid the world's temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow. Our heart is dead in heaven. Oh, praise Him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. Everlasting, never fading, my Redeemer. on God alone and trust in Him completely. With every day pour out my soul and He will prove His mercy. Though life is but a bleeding breath, a sigh
Sing, oh, praise him.
song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh. Jesus the name above every other
sing worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You are so worthy, God. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, Jesus, the only one who could ever say, Worthy, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to City Church. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. As Jay was talking about earlier, what a beautiful opportunity to rest in Jesus together in an anxious and tired world. We would love to get to know you. There's a lot of ways that you can do that, um, especially this Sunday. Number one, uh, we are having uh, what we call kind of our taste and see gathering right after the service. So if you want to grab some coffee and pastries and stay for a while after we're done, you can just go right to the community room. It's behind the lobby. We'll, we'll show you exactly where that is. We'll have some staff and some other leaders in our church that are there. We would love to get to know you. We would love to chat with you for a little bit, uh, tell you more about our church and why we're in downtown. request on there. You can also just indicate any questions that you might have about our church interest in serving in the life of our church, and all you need to do is drop that in the seat pocket in front of you, or you can put that in the brown box in the back of the sanctuary. If you are interested in serving, I can tell you that the particular need we have right now is in our children's ministry, which is going really well. We're finally using our children's classrooms downstairs, uh, which is fantastic. Praise God. They've been sitting there for like nine months uh, since they were completed in the middle of the COVID pandemic, but because of that, we need more and more volunteers. So if you're interested in, in caring for our children, just like if you would put something on your connection card, that would mean the world. And one thing that will allow us to do is ultimately start offering our children's ministry during the 11 a.m. service, uh, because right now, all the families, if they want children's program, have to go to the nine, and it would help us balance out our services a little bit. So if you would be interested in that, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, our community groups are on break right now. They are, in many ways, the backbone of the life of our church relationally. They're on a break, uh, so our, our leaders and our hosts can rest. My goodness gracious, they've had to navigate a lot this past year. These are groups that meet weekly to study scripture together, to pray together, serve our city together, and a lot of other things. Even though they're on break, we would love to connect you with leaders and hosts right now. And a lot of these groups are uh, doing organic things to spend time together, and you could get in on that. So indicate that on your connection card. Come to the Taste and See after the service, and we would love to meet you and get you connected. Uh, and those groups will be resuming. Some will start again in July and others in August. And so keep that on your radar. For uh, <coughs> A membership class is happening two weeks from now. So every so once in a while, we will have membership classes. And because we're back in the sanctuary now, we're going to do these on Sunday afternoons uh, all in one shot. So we're just going to do 1 to 5 p.m. We're going to go for it and knock it all out. Um, I think you'll actually really enjoy it. It's not just an information for dialogue and conversation. You'll get to know other people in the class. So that's Sunday, two Sundays from now on the 27th. We would love to see you there. Um, what is membership? Well, it's an opportunity to be invested in life of the church, to serve the church, and to commit yourself kind of to the mission, doctrine, and serving one another in love. And so we would love to tell you more about that. Taste and see. 
So that's five, ten minutes really quick after the service membership class. A lot more information about the life of our church. And you'll get to have uh, deeper conversations with us. And so I would encourage you to put that on your radar. The women of City Church are knocking it out of the park. They are doing quite a lot, especially in the month of June and then even in the month of July. First of all, they're doing a Bible study on Zoom on Monday nights at 8 o'clock on First Peter. If you would love to be a part of that, which I hope you do, uh, you can still be a part of it. So just put something on your connection card. We will get you all the information. We will be very responsive and help you get connected with that. It's excellent material, great way to get to know some people, even virtually. And then um, the women are doing a, a mixer of sorts, a social in July. So that's on July, let's see, I think it's, yes, July 9th. That's a Friday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Plan on going to that, especially because it's been so hard to be connected this past year. A great way to meet some people that maybe you've seen around but haven't gotten to uh, spend time with. And so that'll be on July the 9th. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as a people of God is giving generously. You can always give online, citychurchgnv.com slash give. Um, or there's a brown box sitting at the back of the sanctuary, and we welcome you to use that as well. One of the reasons, among many, why I'm glad we're back inside, this is our second Sunday back indoors since we did 50 Sundays in a row outdoors at First Magnitude, and it's good that we're back. It's getting humid out there, um, and it would have been emotionally difficult to do another summer out at First Magnitude. Um, one of the reasons I'm back inside is that now we're going to start to resume a, a rhythm that was kind of put on pause, which is kind of hearing testimonies from people in the life of our church. And these might be testimonies as far as God's just general work in their lives through the church, in the church, in the past few months, weeks. Um, it could be testimonies concerning uh, their work in local capacities, partnering with local ministries, maybe that we're formally involved with or not. And then it might also in include some global partnerships. So people just sharing, hey, here's something, even though our church might not be formally partnered with it, here's something that the Lord's been using in my life to bless me. And we want to give people space to tell the church about these things. So even if there isn't a formal, local, or global partnership, we still want to know what you're doing. And we still want other people to know what you're doing so that they might even come partner with you. So kicking this rhythm off is Leah Carroll. And I hope that you will give her a very warm welcome as she comes up here and shares some things with us this morning. As Chipper said, my name is Leah, and I'm just very excited to be here with you all this morning to share something that's been a real blessing in my life, and I know can be a real blessing for you too. A Compassion International is a Christ-centered organization that helps children and their families who are living in severe poverty all over the world. And their main mode of doing this is through child sponsorship. And I've sponsored a child for the last five years, and it's been a really good thing for me. It's a form of ministry, and I've just been really happy to give back to somebody else, to give them a leg up, and to connect them with Christ. Um, and I place it on my heart to share with you all about compassion so that you could also sponsor a child if you'd like, and you can help serve the poor in this unique way. Through compassion, God has connected me with a young girl named Asana. She lives in one of the poorest countries in the world, called Burkina Faso in Western Africa. And most adults there make $20 a month as day laborers or farmers. So they're very happy for any extra support that they receive. Um, also, Asana's country is predominantly Muslim, and just a very small percentage, about 10% of people would claim to be Christian. But it's through compassion that Asana is learning about Jesus. And she's able to hear about Bible stories at the center. And I've really just enjoyed hearing about her growing faith and being a twin child with her. 
Um, you can also just visit the child if you'd like. Um, there's a woman who attends my parents' church named Nellie. She's sponsored 26 children, and she's visited 22 of them. Um, one of her children even graduated from sponsorship and was later crowned Miss Universe. And she mentioned in her speech that she couldn't have been there if it wasn't for her grandma, Nellie. Um, and then Nellie's, I mean, her generosity has inspired me to be more generous. And as I was preparing this talk, um, Compassion sent me these child packets. They're in the back. They have um, pictures and a bio of each child that was willing to be sponsored. And as I was looking through them, I found another girl that I really want to sponsor. I wasn't planning on that. Um, her name is Ruse, and she's from Bolivia, which is where some of my family's from. Uh, so I'd really be happy to go visit her one day. And just sometimes we can just forget how much God has really given us. I mean, just by living in the United States, I mean, we enjoy a lot of luxuries that the rest of the world never gets to experience. And I know that people who were hardest hit by the COVID pandemic were those who were already living in poverty. And I know in Burkina Faso, where Sano's from, they've had um, famine-like conditions, and over a million people have been deported from their homes just from increased violence and instability in the area. And so, um, yeah, it's just been, it's been really tough for them. And I just want to talk about this one lady. Her name is Rosalie, who was able to be helped by Compassion. Compassion was able to help hundreds of thousands of people, and uh, Rosalie is a single mom a single mother of three who was left by her husband after having a series of medical issues. And she was able to have her youngest child be registered at the Compassion Center in their community. So whenever the COVID pandemic broke out, her and her family wasn't forgotten about. They've actually received monthly food baskets um, and support in that way. And she's also um, been able to attend classes that are gonna help her run her own small business uh, whenever the restrictions ease up she can go back to work and I just wanted to mention a quote that Rosalie said she says I no longer need to beg for food from neighbors because the center has blessed me with a bag of 25 kilograms of rice cooking oil a box of soap spaghetti tomato milk and biscuits this food pack will sustain us not for a day or a week, but it will last longer than any food storage we've ever had. So I am very grateful and happy for the invaluable support of the children. Um, and I'd just like to end by reading from chapter uh, Matthew chapter 25. Thirty-four. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says, And the king will say to those at his right hand, Come. You that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Amen.
if you feel, I know that there are many ways that you can serve the Lord and the poor, um, but if you feel compelled to sponsor a child or just want to learn more, I'll be in the back after the service, um, and you can bring a child into the back as well. Thank you, Leah. That was wonderful. Um, really appreciate your investment in the life of our church and in compassion. I hope for all of you that kind of whets your appetite a little bit uh, to not only talk with her after the service, but maybe you have something you'd like to share, testimony of the Lord's work in your life. Some of you, we know the Lord's work, and we're going to hunt you down so you can share. Um, but come find us, too. Even better is when you come to us and say, hey, I have a word. I have something I'd love to share with the church, and we will, we will work you in. Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Ezra. It's chapters 9 and 10. We're in a series right now in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are actually one literary unit. So today we're in the last message in Ezra. Next week we'll be in Nehemiah. We're looking at chapters 9 and 10. If you have a Bible, you think it's a great idea if you would pull that out and follow along with us. Uh, the passage will also be up here on the screen for your reference as well. This passage is really something. It's definitely not boring. It will arrest your attention, but we have to do some, some pretty difficult work to unpack it. Here's the thing, though. I am convinced that when we do that difficult work, I think very often we come away particularly changed and transformed. And so it's worth getting into this and seeing what the Lord will do. So we'll read the passage, and then we'll pray together, in, including for Leah. I'm actually going to read chapter 9 by itself right now, and then we'll poke around in chapter 10 later on as well. So this is Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king's of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been showed by the Lord our God to, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we were slaves, we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, 
The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and, ne- and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? so that there may, should be no remnant, nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. We are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. I told you this passage is something, so let's pray together and ask the Lord for help. Father, this is a heavy passage. We can at least gather that. There's a lot of talk about guilt, uh, Ezra pleading with you um, on his hands and knees. And so, Father, I pray that we would rightly understand the heaviness of this text, but also be encouraged that your spirit would work in such a way that we are simultaneously challenged and encouraged in the Lord. And, Father, we also praise you for the work of compassion and and for the involvement that Leah has had for the past five years with him. And we do pray that people from our church would be stirred to likewise partner with him. And I pray that in these next few months, you would raise up people to share powerful testimonies about the work of the Lord in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, this passage does not mesh particularly well with our contemporary sensibilities. At best, it feels kind of uppity, maybe a little bit snobbish. You know, what a, what a ghastly thing it is that you, O oh Israelites, were associating with those people who are not holy like we are holy. You can imagine... Ezra, you know, kind of carrying around a parasol and having a little handkerchief in his pocket as he says something like this. At worst, it feels racist, maybe particularly so in light of our cultural moment. Or perhaps chapters 9 through 10 feel kind of like a a witch hunt, you know, blaming your moral problems on an innocent group of people and then expelling them for cathartic purposes. Professor David Jansen was so devoted to this take, this witch-hunting take on Ezra chapters 9 and 10, that he wrote an entire book about it back in 2002, and you can still buy it on Amazon today for $220, keeping in mind that you'll get free delivery if you have a Prime account. So what should we make of this passage? What is going on? Is it uppity? Is it racist? Is it witch-hunting-esque? Or is it something else? A faithful reading of this text shows us that it is something else and that something has to do with holiness. Last week we talked about how important it was for the returning Israelite exiles to return rightly as the people gathered around the word of God. But now we're going to zoom out a bit and see that gathering around the word fits within this broader enterprise of being a holy people. The relationship between God's word and our holiness is a bit of a chicken or the egg scenario. On one hand, holiness holiness manifests itself as, as zeal for studying God's word, 
But on the other hand, gathering around the word of God is itself the soil in which holiness blossoms and develops. And clearly there's some cyclical energy here, but the bottom line is that returning rightly meant gathering around the word in order to be a holy, set-apart people, fully devoted to the Lord. So this morning, we need to do even more work as far as discerning what it meant for the Israelites to return to Jerusalem rightly. We need to paint an even broader picture, and then we need to wrestle with the implications of that posture for us today. Two reflections this morning as we continue last week's project to sort out the what now as we rehab it our home after a very different kind of exile. Two reflections. Number one, the priority of holiness. And then number two, the practice of holiness. The priority of holiness and then the practice of holiness. Let's start with that first reflection. The priority of holiness. In case you're just tuning in to our series here in Ezra, Nehemiah, well, first of all, welcome. But we need to give you something of an overview of the storyline we've been covering that's probably scandalous in its brevity, but we're going to go with it. You might be aware, even from pop culture, that in the Exodus, the Israelites were rescued out of Egyptian slavery by the hand of God and the agency of a guy named Moses. And then they journeyed through the wilderness toward the promised land, a land aptly named because God had promised it to them as their inheritance in light of their status as God's chosen people. And then after some fits and starts, they eventually gained this land, only to lose it several hundred years later as a consequence for their idolatry and injustice, thus their exile into Babylon. However, God being supremely gracious and compassionate, promised to preserve an Israelite remnant and eventually bring them out of exile and back to Jerusalem. So in 538, 537 BC, the first wave of exiles returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And then in 458 BC, the second wave of exiles returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of the priest slash scribe slash Persian court official Ezra. And the return of that second wave was our focus last week in Ezra chapters 7 and 8. One of the reasons for Ezra's return to Jerusalem with the second wave was to check in on the spiritual estate of the exiles who had previously returned under Zerubbabel. And how were they doing? Well, their situation wasn't a total loss, but there is at least one extremely serious maintenance issue. You might compare their situation to the McDonald's ice cream machine at about 10 p.m. It's technically still functional, but you can tell by the way that the manager is messing with it that something is very wrong. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 9, specifically verses 1 and 2. After Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, some Israelite leaders who were already living in Jerusalem, they eventually mustered up the courage to bring him a bit of news. And I say eventually because a time marker 
And chapter 10 indicates that they waited five months to bring him this news. Part of that delay was probably practical. They wanted to wait for Ezra and the second wave to get situated a little bit to take care of the things that you see them taking care of at the end of chapter 8. But the other part of the delay was probably a function of Ezra's faithful resolve to teach and to apply the Mosaic law. So the more he taught about the law, the more these leaders were convicted and determined that they had a little something that they needed to report. And you see this report in verses 1 and 2. You know, hey, Ezra, how are you? We are glad to hear that you are doing well. We are also doing very well. However, here's the thing. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. But they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, basically apostasy, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Now, should the Israelites have known not to marry these foreign women? Yes. In fact, this prohibition of intermarriage was effectively part of the Mosaic law. The Lord had warned the Israelites against this even before they originally gained the promised land. You can find those warnings in Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. Was the main concern that these women were foreign, as in not Israelites? No. And that is really, really important. The main concern is that these women were part of people groups who practiced what verse 1 calls abominations. That is, they worshiped gods other than Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And even worse, the way that they worshiped these gods was wicked. We're talking temple prostitution. And in the worst cases, child sacrifice. So the prohibition wasn't really about nationality. It wasn't about ethnicity. The prohibition was about idolatry. God knew that if the Israelites started associating with the folks like the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Moabites, especially marrying them, it was far more likely that the Canaanites would pull the Israelites into idolatry than it was that the Israelites would pull the Canaanites out of idolatry. And not only did God know that, this is precisely the rationale he gave for the intermarriage prohibition in Exodus chapter 34, verse 16. When you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Again, the problem wasn't nationality, the problem wasn't ethnicity, the problem was idolatry. And the problem beneath that was right worship, since idolatry is basically false worship. And the fundamental problem beneath that was holiness. Thus the lament from the Israelite leaders in verse 2. This is their central lament. The holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. 
Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Idolatry has threatened worship, which threatens their holiness. There's one more step we need to take, though, and then we'll really be in business here. Why were the Israelites a holy race? Why were they a holy race? Was it because they were inherently more holy or more impressive than other groups of people? No. And God made that really clear, even in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 passage, which I actually alluded to earlier. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. These are, listen to these words. For you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you catch that? The Lord didn't choose the Israelites to be his treasured possession because they were impressive and especially lovable. In fact, they were the, the fewest of all the peoples. You might even say that they were the hardest to love. So the Lord chose the Israelites despite themselves, somewhat mysteriously, because God shows mercy and compassion to undeserving people. That's his MO. And as his chosen people, these Israelites were to be set apart for God. They were to be holy. Their whole lives were to be organized around worshiping God, which meant separating themselves from anyone and anything that could interfere with that worship. Why was this holiness such a priority in God's mind? Why was this such a big stinking deal? At least three reasons, at least three reasons, and you could loosely label them response, mission, and deliverance. Why was this such a big deal? Why was holiness such a big deal? At least three reasons, response, mission, and deliverance. Number one, their holiness was a worshipful response to God's holiness that would glorify God and lead to their flourishing, to lead to their well-being. And by the way, this this worshipful response, it was, it was more than some songs and some sacrifices. It was faithful obedience in all of life, in accordance with the law, including some obediences that were way out of sync with pagan and secular culture. Number two, mission. In being a holy people, the Israelites were going to be a reflection of God's holiness, a window into his character and mission, and in so doing, be a blessing to the entire world. And then number three, deliverance. It was through the holy race of Israel that God intended to raise up Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the literal personification of holiness, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus was the ultimate deliverance that, that the Israelites and, and really all people need on account of our sin and the effects of sin in the world. So if the deliverance was to happen, the holy race needed to endure. And if you're looking for scripture passages to back up these reasons, and I hope you are looking for scripture passages to back up these reasons, you can check out Genesis chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 11 and Jeremiah chapter 3 and so on 
and so forth. Church, I have a question. Can you think of other people who are also called by God to prioritize holiness, yet have a very hard time warding off temptations to idolatrously conform to the patterns of this world? Specifically folks who are graciously called by God to be his people, even though there is nothing impressive about them to merit this calling. Can you think of anyone that meets that description? Peter, as in one of Jesus' closest disciples, he could think of some people. He could think of a lot of people. Check out these segments of a letter that Peter wrote to some very early Christians, Christians that he refers to as spiritual exiles, many of whom were not Jewish. Check out these segments. This is, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So church, when we are saved by grace through faith, God sets us apart to be a holy people in the same kind of way he set the Israelites apart to be a holy people. And then he, he tells us to live holy, set apart lives in conformity to his will as it's laid out for us in Scripture. And, you know, I don't know if I can think of a more jarring set of marching orders in our present context. You know, today, especially in the West, we celebrate individualism and, and self-expression and authenticity. Those are the buzzwords. But then in the midst of that, God picks up a megaphone and he announces to us, um, those of you who are my people who have put their hope in the Messiah, here's how you should express yourselves. Be holy. Live obediently in the way that Jesus marks out for you in, in the Sermon on the Mount and in the way that Peter and Paul and James spell out for you in their letters. That's how you should live. Why this emphasis on holiness, especially since it, it contradicts our contemporary sensibilities? Well, you're not going to believe this, but it's for the same three reasons we just talked about. Response, mission, and delivery. And the passages I just read from 1 Peter back up all of these reasons. Number one, when you gaze upon the perfect holiness of God, when you realize that, that nobody else is like him, any response aside from a zeal for personal and corporate holiness would be ridiculous. We, we worshipfully gravitate toward the things we find beautiful and fascinating, which of course glorifies the people or the things we gravitate toward. I saw one author put it like this a couple of weeks ago, religious people find God useful, growing Christians find God beautiful. And to the degree that we find him beautiful and fascinating, we move toward God in worship. And then the more time we spend around God, the more we become like him. And because God is perfectly good and wise and beautiful, we flourish to the extent 
that we become like him, even though we will never be perfectly like him. Number two, the more we become a set-apart people in the kinds of ways that God has set apart, the more effective we'll be in communicating the character and mission of our set-apart God to the people around us. The more effective we will be in proclaiming the excellence of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Can you imagine telling somebody about the beauty and grace of Jesus with an angry face? No. The best way to persuasively communicate something is to model what you are communicating. Thus the need for holiness. And this kind of missional living will be a blessing to the world. Number three, our holiness manifests itself in faithful obedience that confirms our belonging to the chosen race that God has delivered and will deliver through Jesus the Messiah. Our obedience cannot save us. Our status as God's people is entirely a product of his mercy and grace. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people because of God's mercy. But our obedience confirms our belonging, that we are part of the spiritual family of David, that Jesus has come to save. Want to demonstrate that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus? Then as obedient children, cut yourself off from the passions of your former ignorance. No enduring obedience means no deliverance. But the good news is that we have the Holy Spirit to help us persevere along the way and keep us in God's family. Now the prioritization of holiness makes sense. Now it makes sense. And as you can see, our, our individual and corporate holiness, it's, it's not this austere, prideful posture that entails wearing fancy hats and, and kind of looking down our noses at people. And on the other end, it's not monastic living where we live together in a camp in the woods. It's not that either. Our holiness is this worshipful response to God's holiness in which we live with faithful obedience in this world while taking care to separate ourselves from the idolatry that would cause us to become more like this world than like God. So how do we do it? How do we live like this? Now that we see the reasons for it, how do we live like this? What, what should this holiness look like now that we see its importance? And that brings us to our second reflection, the practice of holiness. Really, this should be the practices of holiness, because I'm going to mention four of them most of which you can see in Ezra's chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to mention four practices, or there are potentially more, but I'm going to focus on four practices of holiness. Number one, the practice of holiness requires gathering around the word. And now you can see how things are starting to come together, especially in light of what we talked about last week. The primary way that we learn about God's holiness and our holiness is by gazing upon the Lord through Scripture and then learning about his will for us through Scripture. That's the soil for holiness. And you might say, didn't we talk about this <coughs> last week? Yes, yes, we did. 
But Ezra chapter 9 shows us something about this practice of gathering around the word that should arrest our attention. And I alluded to it earlier. Why did the Israelite leaders wait five months to bring their intermarriage concerns to Ezra? Why? Because they became convicted about the wickedness of Israel's actions only after Ezra had spent some time teaching and applying the law. Ezra was effectively preaching to the Israelites upon arrival, which was his purpose in coming in the first place. And as these leaders heard him bring the word, they fell under conviction, and they realized that some serious change was in order in their lives and in the lives of the nation. And church just reminds us that the faithful way to gather around the word means submitting to it and conforming our lives and practices, even if doing so warrants significant and even culturally unfavorable changes. And I point this out because there is another way to gather around the word. This isn't the only way to gather around the word. There's a second way to gather around the word. And that way involves conforming or manipulating the word to match our lives and practices. This is the far more comfortable and, and culturally favorable way to gather around the word, but it will lead you down the path of worldliness, not holiness. So option A is you conform your lives to match God's word. That's the path of holiness. Option B means conforming or twisting the word to match our lives. That is the path to worldliness and idolatry. And be warned, that option B, it often looks or even feels faithful. And there are authors out there who are very skilled at doing this. I don't really love to name names, but if you want names, chat with me after the service and we can talk about it. It's practice of holiness, number one, gathering around the word. Number two, the practice of holiness requires ongoing repentance. It requires ongoing repentance. What was Ezra's response to the bad news from the Israelite leaders? It was repentance. Which, by the way, is the number one sign you're conforming your life to match the word rather than the other way around. If you look back on the past 12 months and you, there haven't been seasons or moments of repentance, there's a very good chance you are conforming the word to match your life rather than the other one. You can read all about Ezra's repentance in chapter 9, verses 3 through 15. And eventually the Israelites joined him in this repentance in chapter 10. And when you do read about Ezra's repentance, you will notice some core elements of this confession and repentance. I want to mention a few of them. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. First, Ezra is appalled. He hates the sin that has come to light. And that is a, a critically important step in repentance, for without the hatred, you will never truly repent and experience change. And as we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 and onward, then he's, he's humbled. First, he, he hates what he's hearing about. And then he's humbled. And Ezra, Ezra doesn't worry about playing the blame game or even about how much individual responsibility he has or doesn't have for all of this. He simply falls on his knees 
and spreads out his hands to the Lord in prayer. Then finally, we see in verse 6 to the end of chapter 9, he prays. So he's, he's appalled, he's repentant, and then he prays. And notice that as he prays, he acknowledges both the terror of the sin and God's right to deal with it, but he also appeals to God's mercy shown to Israel in the past and God's promises to Israelites in the future. So in this prayer, you find a sequence of repentance and then belief, which makes all the sense in the world for those of us who are trusting in the promises of God. Practices of holiness. Number one, gathering around the word. Number two, ongoing repentance. And now here's number three. The practice of holiness requires separation. Separation from what? Evil, idolatry, false worship. In this case, and you can see this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, Ezra and the returned exiles determined that separating themselves from idolatry meant separating themselves from these women who practiced such idolatry. And that meant systematically dissolving marriages that involved these women. I know the dissolution of these marriages raises some really difficult theological questions, and I plan to come back to those at the end of our series in Nehemiah. Church, the fruit of true repentance involves zealously separating ourselves from idolatry, expelling the idols from the camp. Confession by itself. Confession by itself, it might, might feel cathartic. It might feel very authentic. But it's not the same thing as repentance, which always involves separation and shame. In fact, and this is really important, Satan can actually weaponize confession by using it to make you feel spiritually alive and faithful, even though you're continuing to harbor the sin as you're confessing. Be mindful of this when you, when you meet with fellow Jesus followers for the sake of spiritual accountability. Number four, fourth practice of holiness. The practice of holiness means bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance. It means bearing fruit in keeping that matches up with our repentance. Separation is really important, but then you have to fill the void with something. Otherwise, the idols will come right on back. And what do we fill that void with? Worshipful obedience in keeping with our repentance. That's what. As I mentioned earlier, the kind of obedience spelled out for us by Jesus himself in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of obedience spelled out for us by Peter and Paul and James and etc. in their letters, obedience characterized mainly by sacrificial love for God and sacrificial love for one another. Isn't this obedience constraining? Isn't it constraining? In a sense, absolutely. But these are constraints that actually give us true freedom. These are constraints that give us true freedom. Idols promise you freedom as a ploy to ultimately master you and destroy you. God says, to the degree that I am your master, then you'll have true freedom in life. 
You know, in light of the potential charges of racism or witch hunting that I mentioned at the beginning of our time this morning, I would like to point out that anyone from anywhere can become part of God's holy race and therefore practice the kind of holiness we've just been talking about. Anyone from anywhere. Seriously. And there are hints of this even in the book of Ezra. Back in chapter 6, we read about the Israelites keeping the Passover feast after they finished rebuilding the temple. And did you notice who joined them for that meal? This is remarkable. Some of the non-Jewish people of the land who had separated themselves from their uncleanness to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That's who joined them. And you know how the Israelites were supposed to steer clear of, of marrying, among other folks, the Moabites? Well, the book of Ruth, I got to tell you, is basically the story of a Moabite woman eventually marrying an Israelite named Boaz. And accordingly, Ruth became an ancestor of King David, who was an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. Redemption came to Ruth, a Moabite, and through Ruth, because she rejected the abominations of her people and trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So would you put your hope in Jesus even today? Anyone from anywhere can become part of this holy race and practice the kind of holiness that we've just been talking about. It's a wild ride, it's a hard ride, it's a beautiful ride, it's a fascinating ride. And I would commend it to you, and I would love to chat with you more about it. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's Supper together. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar fashion, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. And as he poured it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And the reason we can proclaim that is because the, the Holy One of Israel, the true and perfect Holy One of Israel, did not stay dead, rose again, ascended into the presence of the Father, and he is coming back to usher the people of God into the new and holy Jerusalem, where there's going to be no more suffering, there's going to be no more mourning, no more sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to come and to participate in this meal this morning. Those of you that understand your sin, your inability to be perfectly holy, and therefore your need for Jesus, the true and perfect Holy One. If that's you, I hope that you come and that you are nourished by this time of remembrance. If you're here and you wouldn't say that you follow Jesus, we're so glad that you are here. I hope this helps you understand what it means to be part of the people of God. Instead of taking a meal that you wouldn't say that you believe in, we would encourage you to reflect on what we've been talking about. And please, I would love to have 
some dialogue with you. I mentioned this last week. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start doing some kind of Q&A sessions after sermons for those of you that want to continue the dialogue. I hope that you come, and I hope that you engage with us. Ask the hard questions. Wrestle with us. We would love that, kind of, but we really would. Let me pray for us, and then after I pray, uh, you will see that there's an elder or a deacon on either side of this table, and they will each have one of these guys right here. Uh, with some prepackaged communion kits so you can approach um, one of the elders or deacons here or here. They'll have this uh, basket, and then they'll drop one of the packets into your hands. You will also have some packets in the basket sitting out on the hospitality table in the back, uh, which is also a great uh, resource for you, in particular if you don't feel comfortable approaching somebody right now, so that's available to you as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are really moved by the timing of this meal in which we get to remember the perfect holiness of Jesus and what that means for us and how that enables us, surely by the mercy of God, to be part of his kingdom, part of his holy race. I pray that we would remember that with great joy even now, and that would stir our affections for you, O oh Lord. I pray that whatever sin might be kind of lingering in our hearts, either undetected or undealt with, Lord, equip us that your spirit Shed light on that sin that we might bring it to you right now and freshly enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. the sheep without a shepherd to leave their distress for your streams of forgiveness and the shade of your rest and with compassion for the hurting you reached out your hand as the death breathed again you saw behind the eyes of sorrow and shed in our tears heard the sigh of the weary let the children draw near what boundless love what fathomless grace you have shown show to the world your kingdom. 
beneath the cross of Calvary and gazed on your face at the thorns of oppression and the wounds of disgrace. For surely you have borne our suffering and carried our grief as you pardon the scoffer and show grace to the gospel of peace to the fields of injustice and the valleys of need to be a voice of hope and healing to answer the cries of the hungry and helpless with the mercy of Christ what boundless love what fathomless grace you have shown us, O God of compassion. Each day we live an offering of praise as you show to the world your gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to
It's been very sweet to worship with you all this morning. Um, I want to remind you about the KCC luncheon that or uh, Mac or coffee. I'm not sure what they provide. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but just right over there, it's really easy to go to. Just step right through the door. And um, yeah, I'd like um, Mark Samansky and one of the elders here, and I would like to share a discussion with you from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's sing about Christ. Praise God from Go in peace.
this love, this ancient hope, you come to me with righteous robe, clothing me in your salvation. ancient hope, you come to me with righteous robe, clothing me in 